Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi. Hello. Welcome back to Old Millennials, a deep dive on shallow topics from the 90s and 2000s. I am one of your hosts, Emily Bejan. And I am your other host, Margot Poupard. Cue the Grand Fiddler on the Roof chorus, tradition, tradition. Over the years on this podcast, we've begun to maintain some traditions. And one of those is taking the last episode tier of our spring season and talking about the songs that were the shit 20 years ago. And today on our season nine finale, we get to talk about the hits of 2003 in an episode we're ta- we're calling now. That's what I call 2003. Yay! I mean, these were not on or well, one of these songs, one of my songs was on a now that's what I called music. But I would say this is what we call music in 2003, because if you were to flip through my many, many burned mixed CDs in the year of our Lord, 2003, you would have found all of the songs that I'm about to talk about, which is basically that meme of um, where you have like a bunch of different characters all hanging out in a room. It says when I put my uh, playlist on shuffle, that's kind of like my taste in music now. And it was my taste in music then. So I yeah. can't wait for, to be judged <laughs> for uh, my taste. I same. I mean, this for me, it's like what was on my mixes, what was what was playing in on my maybe what iPod at that point, maybe not. And yeah, I couldn't quite I couldn't quite remember. I'm like, I definitely had burned CDs. I don't know yes, if they CDs. were organized in a completely unhinged fashion yes. within my iPod or if it was just within my CD Bible that came with a copy of my Gwen Stefani deluxe album of like Harajuku yes. Girls or whatever the fuck that album was called. <laughs> Love Angel Music Baby. Wow. Thank you. I'm like, you know, the one where it's like airbrushed <laughs> within an inch of its life. Yeah, that's the same here. I definitely think it might have been still CD Bible time for me. Um, but one thing I do want to note, speaking of the mixes you'll get, 
Um, as is customary with many of our music episodes, you're getting a sick playlist for your outdoor barbecues, hot girl walks, road trips, house chores, wherever you choose to listen to a baller mix of songs that meant something to you 20 years ago and may still mean something to you. They sure as hell mean something to us. Um, Anytime yeah. you want to rock the dual set tones of 2003, put on this playlist because I definitely had a good time listening to Spotify's top generic top hits from 2003 like I have been listening to that all week because I'm like why do I have 03 Bonnie and Clyde stuck in my head yet again I mean there have been like certain key changes from songs that have been stuck in my head the the clapping beat that I'll talk about later has been permanently stuck in my head like all I hear are just syncopated claps like um and I'll get more exactly what song you're talking about when you do that little syncopated beat Songs plural, um, but I cannot wait to yes. talk about it. But let's let's bring in this playlist with a with an opener that makes a lot of sense because Fifty Cent just had a banner year in two thousand three. Um, so the first song I'm talking about is Fifty Cent in the club, or as I was bothering Margot earlier with in the club. Uh, but <laughs> I it's just how it's spelled. All right, I understand uh, it's how it's spelled, but you have a choice as a person and as a podcaster is- to either say in the club or in the club. And I think we all know the way the second one sounds. <laughs> to in release- the words of a song that you will cover later. Uh oh, I think that's all that plays in my mind. Yes. To release a debut album that was so big with a debut single that someone can play the first two notes of that music sample and everyone knows what you're playing is incredible. Uh, Where to start with 50 Cent? He's born Curtis James Jackson III, raised in South Jamaica, Queens, and his story is like something out of a movie. So much so that it was literally made into a movie, Get Rich or Die Trying, uh, which I forgot uh, existed, one, and two, was the title of the debut album that he released. It did not have the impact that Eight Mile had, no, although it definitely no. tried to position itself it as such. It certainly did. It certainly did. Yeah, I think that that's where Eight Mile, you know, got right the like semi autobiographical, but let's change his name. Let's maybe change the job he had before a little bit. Like, that's, I think that Eminem, yeah, Eight Mile got it right. And unfortunately, Get Rich or Die Trying was kind of Get Rich or Die mark. Trying is like the direct to DVD version of Eight yes. Mile. Yes. You know, 50 Cent grew up and eventually um, grew up in uh, Queens, eventually sold drugs to make money as a teenager. He was sentenced to jail in the early 90s for selling cocaine to an undercover police officer and ultimately spent time in the boot camp for six months and got his GED. Once he got out, he began rapping and was eventually mentored by the late Jam Master Jay, who taught him how to write raps and hooks, and eventually was signed to Columbia Records and was set to release his debut album in 2000, Power of the Dollar, on July 4th. The album's release was canceled after 50 Cent, very famously, was shot nine times, ending up in the hospital. And he was dropped by Columbia, but bootlegs of his stuff started circulating. And eventually, he released a mixtape through an independent label that ended up in Eminem's hands. And Eminem invited 50 Cent to L.A. to introduce him to Dr. Dre, and 50 Cent eventually signed a $1 million record deal. And after releasing No Mercy, the No Fear of Mixtape, 50 Cent, Dr. Dre, and Eminem began working on what would be Get Rich or Die Trying. And In the Club was the first of seven tracks he recorded in five days with Dr. Dre, which is incredible considering like this is one of those debut hip hop albums that is just 
a lot of hit songs, like really great. Um, production was originally offered to D12 for in the club, like the the backing track, but mm-hmm. the group didn't know what to do with it. And so it was given to 50 Cent. And he specifically recorded the song. It's not surprising. Sorry. Yeah. D12 not knowing what to do with the good beat. Yeah, no shit. That's why D12 is, you know, MIA. And we st- and we can now joke that 50 is being called Fofty. You know what I mean? That's just sort of <laughs> D12's non-impact. I did. You know, it was great to remember D12 and that song Purple Pills and that whole sure. album. Which Devil's I don't even Night. think holds up that well. No, it does not. I mean, that whole, like, it was just... People got their crews uh, at the time. Rap crews got to capitalize on one of their members like fame. And so such was the case for D12 and Eminem. Um, But yeah, that album, you know, I was re-listening to parts of it. I'm like, yeah, it doesn't really hold up. There's there was just a time, though, where, you know, if you were a part of someone's crew, um, you got a just handed you a record deal. And you exactly had no idea what the fuck to do with it. And so you blow it. You blow it. But luckily for 50 Cent, who was Eminem's protege, uh, he ended up having a really successful career. And originally, they wanted the first single from the album to be, if I can't, uh, Jimmy Iovine, famous producer who works with Dr. Dre and co-owned Beats by Dre when the two of them became like insane billionaires. Uh, Eminem wanted in the club and 50 Cent agreed with that. And so the song's released January 11th, 2003. And eight weeks after its release, it hit number one, stayed on top of the chart for nine consecutive weeks. And it was later replaced by one of my other songs, Sean Paul's Get Busy, which I'll be, and um, was nominated for Best Male Rap Solo Performance and Best Rap Songs at the 2004 Grammys, but it lost to Eminem's Lose Yourself. And the music video won Best Rap Video and Best New Artist at the 2003 MTV Video Music Awards. And in 2009, the song was listed at number 24 for Billboard's Hot 100 Songs of the Decade, and it was ranked 448th in Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs of All Time. And uh, was actually performed, if you might remember, in the Super Bowl in 2022, 50 Cent showed up and performed the song at the halftime show. And that's all like I have. Upside down. Upside like down. Path. Yes. It was, like it was really interesting. I was like, this is how you're going to choose to spend your like 48 seconds that you have in the Super Bowl performance. But, yes. you know, it really kind of is his biggest song. He's ne- he's never been able to live up no. to the same heights since. I mean, Mm-mm. even when you hear like um, 21 Questions or like some of his other older yeah. hits that were like hits at the time come back on, it doesn't even hold up as good as In the Club, you know? It's no. just that beat. It really it's is. It's just that beat. And I mean, I got to hand it to 50 Cent for investing in vitamin water. Like, I know. Matter- we all clowned <laughs> him then, but look at him now. He's rich, rich. I mean, he's he, also a terrible person. But, he got you know, rich. He literally got rich and didn't have to die trying, uh, but now has very well, terrible political views. I mean, he did get shot nine times. So that, there is that he, component. He to almost factor. died trying, but he did. He survived and now he has terrible political opinions. Stars show power book oh yes or whatever he's got that yes. like, he's got some ventures like he knew what to do with his 15 minutes of fame money he was very smart about that yes terrible person smart terrible smart person. with money though would ask him smart for money, money advice him and him and rick ross but rick ross wrote a book so i don't even have to ask him <laughs> okay well i'm gonna get into beautiful by snoop dogg and pharrell 
It came out in January of 2003, and it was the second single off of Snoop's sixth studio album, Pay the Cost to Be the Boss. I will not be saying it the way that it is stylized. (laughs) Because there's no way. This song was written by Snoop Dogg with the Neptunes, that would be Pharrell and Chad Hugo. And the song would end up reaching number six on the Billboard Hot 100 and number two on the rap charts. This album is the beginning of Snoop's long-standing partnership with Pharrell and the Neptunes. The album's lead single, From the Church to the Palace, was also produced by them and features an uncredited guest appearance from Pharrell. And that was released earlier in October of 2002. Music video for Beautiful featured Pharrell, but omitted Charlie Wilson, who also had a vocal guest appearance on this track, and was directed by Chris Robinson in Brazil, which helped the single become a hit on the Billboard charts. In retrospect, a critique of the song that Pharrell would later admit was that he didn't really think that the song was going to be a hit. Quote, Snoop really loved Beautiful, but I just didn't get it, mainly because it was... The singing on the track was flat as fuck, and I just didn't hear it. I thought it was a fun record, but then we put Charlie Wilson on, and I was like, man, Charlie sounds amazing on this, and it just feels really good to me. But I still don't think anyone's ever going to go for this. In June of 2004, though, it was announced that Snoop Dogg had signed with Pharrell's, Pharrell and Hugo's record label Star Trek Entertainment to produce and serve as executive producers on his next studio album that would drop the mega hit, Drop It Like a Tot. So in the middle of all of this, there was a little controversy happening with Snoop Dogg, as you may or may not remember, that I think maybe would have it put a little dent in the shine of the success of Beautiful. And also, I have to say, some of these al- some of these songs we're going to talk about today uh, suffer a bit from the curse, um, the 2000s curse that they have two to three good songs and they're the singles that you hear yes. on the radio, but the rest of the album is not so hot. And I would say that about both of the Snoop Dogg albums produced by the Neptunes. Like there were like a couple of songs, but there are also 20 tracks on this uh, album in addition to all of the skits in between. Um, (laughs) And there are only like three songs that are, you know, really worth it. So anyway, in the middle of all beautiful success, it was a little bit marred by controversy because in March of 2003, a lawsuit was filed against Snoop Dogg by a man who claimed that his life was endangered after the rapper had included a 50 second phone message featuring the plaintiff's voice on the album's last track, Pimp Slapped, a diss track aimed at then death row CEO, Suge Knight. The man, only identified as John Doe for security reasons, had left a message for Snoop in October of 2002, who was identified on the answering machine as Jim Bob. He insisted that the album (laughs) needed to be recalled and canceled for distribution in its current form and stated in court papers that he had been threatened verbally several times and feared for his life and his mother's life due to Knight's close proximity as they both still lived in Compton at the time. But in February of the following year, the lawsuit was dismissed for common law appropriation of voice and intentional infliction of emotional distress under the ruling that privacy cannot be maintained while leaving a message on another on another's recording device, which really feels like you got that on like a technicality, but it went yes. away eventually. It's uh, it's like one of those people, Gen Z will never know like the fear that people lived in with Suge Knight, like how mm-hmm. Suge Knight was tied, like East Coast, West Coast, rap battle and feuds. Um, the fact that like, you know, people lived in fear of Suge Knight, like this, it's a, it's a very specific time and place. I just don't feel like, well, I you mean, don't need to go back that far emily he hit someone with his fucking car oh, when yes. they made straight out of compton oh my that god i like forgot about five years, years ago. ago yeah not you're that right. long ago not long yeah. ago at all jesus oh my god i know well, that's truly but i mean i know what you mean though like 
I think after that whole vanilla uh, ice controversy about being yes. hung over the side of like a railing and Suge Knight just being like, yeah, I did that. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, mean, I, I think that it felt he felt a lot more like um, Debo in like Friday. Like he could just like roll up on you and like fuck you up at any time. And yeah. I think that, that, that he had like a, a mythology that was not easily googleable in the moment if you know what i mean which made him feel, seem a little bit more scary it's very true That's i mean he is true. fucking scary or was scary yes um so because i just brought it up earlier uh i let's let's get into sean paul's get busy um hell before yeah we, <laughs> you know i'm a sean paul gal i love you know what re-listening to this album this man had a hold on the culture for a he couple still of years does. what are you talking about this man is Features constantly. Just like great, great songs. So before we talk about Sean Paul, we need to talk about the Diwali and I'm going to say it rhythm. And I want to clarify, I'm not trying to appropriate any cultures here. The term rhythm is spelled R-I-D-D-I-M and refers to the instrumental accompaniment in a song, particularly in Jamaican dancehall music. You'd have a DJ who created a rhythm and it was used in a backing track or for the voicing part, sometimes sung by the DJ or by a performer. And because these rhythms are often pre-recorded, there's a tradition where a lot of artists or rappers will perform their own track over the rhythm. And in 1998, Jamaican producer Stephen Lanky Marsden created a rhythm called Diwali. And the Diwali rhythm doesn't really go anywhere for the first few years, but it's later used in a compilation album titled Green Sleeves, Rhythm album number 27, Diwali in 2002, which just sounds like every other compilation album that came out in the early 2000s with insane names. Anyway, Greensleeves is a British label that was putting together compilations called Rhythm Albums, which were albums dedicated to different artists' takes on the single rhythm. So it would be the same backing track, but everyone would do their own track, uh, sing their own track on top of it. So after the compilation albums release, the Diwali rhythm blows up, and so do the songs with this rhythm, including the song Sufferer by Bounty Killer. And it's fairly recognizable with its syncopated clapping that I mentioned earlier, the... And their background music sample that features sitars, hence the name Diwali. Outside of the compilation, the Diwali rhythm found its way into several tracks that became hits in 2003, and in some cases were released within a wink of one another. And the first one was on January 1st, 2003. The song No Letting Go by Wayne Wonder was released, classic in the club, uh, which was co-written by Wayne Wonder and Stevie Lankin Marston the producer behind that rhythm that I mentioned earlier, it went to number three in the UK singles chart and peaked at number 11 on the Billboard Hot 100. And then a week later, January 7th, 2003, Sean Paul released Get Busy, the second single from his major uh, hit album, Duddy Rock. Stereo Gum wrote this great piece on the song and talked about how the road to this song becoming Sean Paul's first Billboard number one uh, was a really interesting one. So he was born Sean Paul Ryan Francis Henriquez, And he grew up in Kingston, Jamaica, and was already a major artist in the 90s, trying his best to emulate the career of dance hall artist Supercat, one of his idols. And people in the U.S. are probably most familiar with Supercat because he appeared on several hip-hop songs in the 90s and was later featured in the remix of the Sugar Ray hit song, Fly. Sean Paul originally wanted to be a more socially conscious artist, but he grew up fairly middle class, so people didn't really take him seriously on that front. So he's mostly stuck to party music and good for him because he had some 
R&B hip hop crossover success in those 90s, early 2000s years, and was even featured in a cameo role in the Hype Williams movie, Belly. He, his frequent collaborator, Mr. Vegas, and DMX had a track on the soundtrack called Top Shotta. Eventually, Sean Paul really crosses over into the R&B hip hop charts and has a solid hit with the song Gimme the Light, still a banger, which featured another rhythm, the buzz rhythm, a track from the Miami-based production studio Black Shadow. Get Busy, the follow-up single, peaked at number one on the Billboard chart for three weeks and was number one in Italy and the Netherlands and made the top 10 in 11 other countries. Duddy Rock, the album, went on to sell 4.6 million copies and had five hit singles, Gimme the Light, Get Busy, Like Glue, Baby Boy, I'm Still in Love with You, all bangers. Uh, a few years later, Stephen Lanky Marsden was awarded the 2004 ASCAP Songwriter of the Year Award because of all those songs. And in 2005, a young singer from Barbados by the name of Robin Rihanna Fenty entered the chart with her debut single, Ponda Replay, which uses the same Diwali rhythm a bit sped up. Um, Sean Paul, I mean, to this day, this song will get the people going. I just, this whole album, like it is good time. I like just love it. I, and the music video, lots of fun as well. It's like a house party. It, and it was shot in the Toronto suburbs makes sense. There's a very large Jamaican population in the Toronto area. Um, yeah, I mean, just, I'm going to go more into this beat when we talk about Lumidi after this. Um, but yeah, Sean Paul. Never misses. I'm so sorry, but it's Shana Paul. I just got to tell you. <laughs> and you got on my case earlier. <laughs> there is no other way to say his name. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, that is the only time I will break for Chet Hanks is when I when I call my close personal friend Shana Paul by his by his true name Shana Paul. I don't know. I can't help it. And yes, and you- I think it's like a disease that a lot of other millennials uh, suffer from because I know I'm not alone. Like I no, feel like, I- like a Peloton. Yeah, there's like definitely like a Peloton class when like a Sean Paul ki- song came on and the instructor like bursted out saying, <laughs> saying, it like, yep, thank you. It's hard. I know it like it took all every ounce of me to not say it, uh, to not break <laughs> during this segment. <laughs> well, just call me Jimmy Fallon. Don't, I don't, don't call me that. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> All right, I am going to move on to O3 Body and Clyde by one Beyonce and her husband Jay Z. Even though this song was released in October of 2002, I'm going to count it for 2003 due to the title and the stunning amount of airplay that this song got and honestly still gets the quote unquote yes. old school rap station, which I take much umbrage with, but that is a tale for a different one jams. <laughs> yes, they play this song, I swear to God, twice oh, an hour, if not twice more. Twice an hour. They play I think I've heard song this song once every more. five songs. I've heard this song more in a drive from my house to Lake Merritt than I have in the last 20 years. Like I hear yeah. it so often on that radio station. It's very true. They love to play that song and they will play a Tupac song one every five songs at least. I have a sneaking suspicion these are the only two songs that they're allowed to play. And it's funny that you bring up Tupac because of the, the sample, but we'll get to that in one yes, yes. second. O3 Bonnie and Clyde marks the first time that Jay-Z and Beyonce collaborated together, and it was also the first inklings that, hey, they might be sort of romantically involved. The song was composed by Jay-Z, Kanye West, 
Prince, due to samples, Tupac, Daryl Harper, Ricky Rouse, and Tyrone Rice. And it was for Jay-Z's seventh album, The Blueprint 2, The Gift, and The Curse. The song was released as the album's lead single. Now, the song sampled its beat from Tupac's 1996 song, Me and My Girlfriend, and was inspired by the crime movie Bonnie and Clyde. And the instrumentation is based on, you know, programmed drums, some bass, and a flamenco guitar, which, you know, is very prominent in the opening chords of this song. It was producer Kanye's idea who suggested that me and my girlfriend would make a really good sample for Jay-Z to duet with Beyonce. But tensions arose over the sampling of me and my girlfriend. According to senior vice president of A&R, Tina Davies, the issue was, quote, we only had one day to clear the Tupac sample, and that was used in 03 Bonnie and Clyde, and we were back and forth with the Feeney Shakur all day until we got clearance. And then it became this huge hit. The single reached number four on the Billboard Hot 100, becoming Jay-Z's second top 10 single and Beyonce's first as a solo artist. The music video was directed by, you guessed it, Chris Robinson, and features Jay-Z and Beyonce playing also, as you would guess it, a modern day version of the 1920s bank robbers Bonnie and Clyde. It was later nominated for Best Hip Hop Video at the 2003 MTV Music Video Awards. Beyonce later included the song as a bonus track on international editions of, of her 2003 debut album dangerously in love and in 2003 it was also included in the 12th edition of now that's what i called music <laughs> and it was the opening track other bonnie and clyde was received pretty favorably by critics wrap up credited this song for giving beyonce quote unquote a little street cred which at the time is true because she went from a girl group to kind of like a good girl like singing about crazy in love and so being on like a rap song with jay-z kind of made it seem like oh like maybe she's not just another gal from a all-girl group trying to go solo staff members of vibe magazine placed the song at number two on the list of best songs about bonnie and clyde which i which i thought was really funny i was like how many songs are there inspired by bonnie it's, and clyde it's to like it necessitates a list I mean, I've, it's like how I wanted to put together a list of song, hip hop songs that mention Elliot Ness because mm -hmm. the limit, the limit does not exist. Right. Bonnie and Clyde, though, I can think of. I really don't even know a second song. Oh, there's um one by like Brigitte uh, Bardot and Serge. Gainsbourg. Oh, you're right, like, Bonnie and Clyde. Yes, you're totally right. <laughs> I hate that song. <laughs> It was nominated for Best Collaboration in 2003 by the BET Awards, but lost to Snoop Dogg's Beautiful. And in 2013, a list, a list of Jay-Z's 20 biggest Billboard hits, Bonnie and Clyde was ranked as number six. By entering the top five of the Billboard Hot 100, it also became the highest charting single that referenced Bonnie and Clyde as well. A record that was previously held by Georgie Fame's 1967 single, The Ballad of Bonnie and Clyde. So there's a third song. There's another oh, yeah. thing to include in our little list. Uh, following a performance of O3 Bonnie and Clyde on SNL, it increased the listenership by 12% and allowed the song to advance to the top 10 of the U.S. hot R&B hip-hop songs chart to number seven. It also gave Jay-Z his 12th top 10 single, tying him with rapper P. Diddy, who at the time had, had the same number of top 10 singles on that chart. 03 Bonnie and Clyde was also Jay-Z's first top 10 hit since 2001's Girls, Girls, Girls. It was also certified gold, denoting that it had sold over a million, or sorry, it was denoted as gold, and the song has sold over a million copies in the U.S. It also reached the top 10 in six European countries. In Canada, it peaked at number four, becoming Jay-Z's highest chartist single that until it was surpassed by 2009's with Alicia Keys' Empire State of Mind. Uh, before that, his 
biggest peaking song was Hard Knock Life that peaked in uh, Canada. It also happened in the UK. Same thing. He hadn't had like a highest charting single since Hard Knock Life in 1998. There was some controversy, though, as there is wont to be. And it was a feud that started from Tony Braxton, who also had sampled Me and My Girlfriend in her 2002 song, Me and My Boyfriend. Oh, yeah. Right. Braxton and her team released a statement saying that Jay-Z's song had stolen Braxton's idea to sample the same song, Me and My Girlfriend. She called into Wendy Williams show when she was still on the radio in New York and stated that, quote, Jay-Z and Beyonce are messing with my money. They're trying to steal my mojo. Braxton had said that her song was recorded over the summer of 2002 and alleges that Jay-Z heard that sample after he was played a version in the Def Jam's record, or Jeff, Def Jam recording records offices. Kanye responded to her claim, of course, by having an interview with MTV News where he said, quote, I had no idea about Tony Braxton's song. She can't act like nobody had never heard the song, Me and My Girlfriend, before. People hear the song all the time. I can understand her complaint if it was an original song. (laughs) But Jay-Z also hopped on the mic at MTV News to do a little damage control and responded to Braxton's claim by saying, quote, I wouldn't want to take it from her. I don't even think like that. My first thought would be maybe I could call her up and we could go get on that record together. The most obvious explanation is that neither one of our records were listened to before. It's not an original idea. She's not in hip hop, but it also happens in hip hop often. We go to the we go to sample the same thing. And my record came out first. I'm sorry. What can I do? He went on to say that if he had known that she was also planning to use it, that he would have arranged a duet with her. And that is the end of Bonnie and Clyde, at least for now. At least Number for two now. ranking uh, in out of a top three songs about Bonnie and Clyde. <laughs> well, I had to talk about at least one other song that features the same beat in Sean Paul, uh, Get Busy, and because there were so many on the chart in 2003. And of course, that song is Never Leave You by Lumi D, which is still a lot of fun to listen to. So four months after No Letting Go and Get Busy were released as hits on May 12, 2003, Lumi D's Never Leave You, uh-oh, uh-oh, was released. Lumi D was raised in Spanish Harlem, and at 18, she had been working on some tracks for the past year with DJ Ted Smooth, who had worked on a lot of local clubs. They worked on a song together called Honestly that was more of a slow song. And it was basically like the first version of Never Leave You. And it's featured on her album, Almost Famous. It wasn't really going anywhere. So they decided to do a remix using the Diwali rhythm I mentioned earlier because it was so popular. And it kind of clicked. And so the song was played on local New York radio during segments where DJs were playing tracks that were big in the local clubs. And it started blowing up and grew super organically. And soon she had a hit single and no album. And there was this mad rush to get her signed as soon as possible and release something. So she signed with Universal Records and she released an album like two weeks later. Like it was very, very quick. They just took the tracks she had recorded with Ted Smooth and compiled them into an album. No post-production, no editing, etc. And that's why I feel like kind of an asshole. Like I remember hearing the song be like, why is this girl like slightly off key? It's a little weird. And it's because like it was recorded, you know, in a much smaller studio by someone who I'm sure is a good producer, but is not like a top producer. And this the label did not put any money into like trying to make this post-production better so that is why that particular track is a little off key that's so wild how yes all right yeah that does a disservice to everybody involved why couldn't you run it through (laughs) run it through a little finishing tool before you release it to the public they didn't 
they did nothing with it really. And she signed That's a pretty so bad deal. It was very quick and, 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 you know, done hastily. And she was 18 and green never had done anything in the industry. And she's just trying to capitalize on this like once in a lifetime opportunity. Uh, so never leave you went on to number one and in Belgium, Germany, and Italy, the Netherlands and Switzerland. And it peaked at number three on the billboard chart and number two on the UK chart. And the album, unfortunately, got really bad reviews because of its low production value, what we just talked about, and people feeling like the song and album were being rushed to capitalize on a trend. And yes, that's exactly what happened. And Lumi D really didn't have much of a say in the way things went down because you're 18. What do you do? Um, The song eventually died down and her contract with Universal ended, but she went abroad and had a ton of success in Europe as a featured vocalist on dance hall and reggaeton tracks and found success Um, All over the world, she signed with a German label and had a number one record in France at one point and even did a FIFA World Cup song with Fat Man Scoop in 2006 called Dance! Exclamation point. Her second LP, Unexpected, came out in 2007 and had a minor hit with the cover of She's Like the Wind. And she's still recording to this day. And most recently, Never Leave You was sampled in Nicki Minaj's single Red Ruby the Sleaze earlier this year. And Billboard recently interviewed Lumi D about Never Leave You as part of a Where Are They Now for 2003 acts. She received an email from Nicki Minaj's team when they needed rush approval for the song sample. And she was super excited to agree to it because her 14-year-old daughter is a big Nicki Minaj fan. And I really love this quote from the interview. She said, quote, I got even more excited because I have a 14-year-old daughter and she's a barb. She goes to war for Nicki Minaj. So I'm like, if this happens, you know all the cool points I'm going to get. She was worried the song wouldn't see the light of day. And then her friend reached out to her one day and was like, did you see Nicki Minaj posted the song? And so she's getting um, royalties for the sample. And she isn't bitter about the way everything went down with Never Leave You. Because despite this like shoddy record contract, she continues to make a living from singing to this day. So she may not be the biggest artist out there, but she is still making money that way. And, um, you know, her song is still a lot of fun and catchy 20 years later. So Love it. Good for you, Lumi D. Yeah, let's get that on rotation on the old school hip hop and R&B station, okay? Seriously. (laughs) Okay, I'm going to go a totally different direction than the one that you were in. Because I I felt like I'd be remiss to include this song that was, speaking of radio stations, all over K-Rock in 2003. It is Faint by Linkin Park. Faint oh, is yeah. the second single off Linkin Park's second album, Meteora. It was released in June of 2003 and entered the top thor- top 40, top 30 on majority of the charts. On the Hot 100, it peaked at number 48. It hit number one on the Modern Rock Tracks, and it became the band's third number one hit on the Modern Rock Tracks chart. The song was released as two singles, Faint 1 and Faint 2. I don't know if you remember those. And they differed in cover color and track listing. Faint 1 was in blue and Faint 2 was in this like really gross like brown green color. I probably remember this, but I remember also there were just a lot of Linkin Park remixes like Encore or Numb Encore is when I think of, for example. Why, thank you for that lovely segue because the song will okay. later be featured on the group's mashup EP with Jay-Z, Collision Course, <laughs> where it was mashed up with the lyrics uh, from the song Jiggle What on from volume two, Hard Knock Life. So thank you so oh, much. Great. 
Faint is considered one of Linkin Park's most iconic and covered songs with its intro and that opening guitar riff being widely recognizable. The video was directed by Mark Romanek and it was shot in downtown LA and it was the band performing in front of an audience with, with a giant floodlight on them. Almost the entire video is shot from behind the band allowing the strong lighting to portray them essentially as silhouettes. Therefore, the faces of the band are not really shown throughout most of the music video, except during the final chorus when the band is shown in in front of the crowd. There is also a director's cut that features an extended ending with Mike Shinoda spray paints the words uh, en prosecco in Spanish for in process on a garage door. Um, I remember seeing that once. And as of January 2023, so, you know, 20 years later, Faint Music Video has over 375 million views on YouTube, which I thought was wild. People love Linkin Park. Yeah, you know, the song is still pretty good. Yeah, I was, I mean, I was a big, big fan. It's not that I dislike them now. I just don't like, you know, listen to them the way I did when I was 15. Right. That kind of makes sense because you don't feel that way anymore. Well, I'm going to go in a very different direction and uh, bring up Kelly Clarkson's Miss Independent. I mean, kind of in the same same universe, though. In similar universe, for Feeling sure. Feeling misunderstood. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Miss Independent was released April 10th, 2003, and is the second single off of Kelly's debut studio album, Thankful. And it was recorded, or sorry, it was written by Kelly Clarkson, Christina Aguilera, Rhett Lawrence, and Matt Morris with Lawrence serving as producer and you heard Christina Aguilera's name. The song's history is super interesting because it was in fact intended for a few people over the years. Uh, Rhett Lawrence is a songwriting and producing legend. He produced Mariah Carey's vision of love, which was her first big number one single and won her a Grammy. He was also a programmer, arranger and studio musician for earth, wind and fire, Michael Jackson, Neil Diamond, Chicago, Barbara Streisand, Quincy, Quincy Jones, etc. Anyway, back to Miss Independent, which in its early form was called Miss Independence. With a name like that, Margo, who do you think uh, Lawrence originally offered the song to? I really don't know. Shania Twain? Destiny's Child. Oh. (laughs) Which makes a lot of sense. It does, but I really can't envision it as a three-part harmony song. And at that point, it was probably in an early incarnation of it, so mm-hmm. it could have very well changed. But they declined the song, and it was brought to Christina Aguilera and was intended to make her second album, Strip. So she recorded- That makes more half- sense. Yes. And especially from a vocal standpoint. She recorded half the song, it remained unfinished, and eventually they finished production on Stripped and never released it. The song then made its way to Clive Davis and Simon Fuller, who were looking for songs for Kelly Clarkson's debut album. And Fuller, as you might remember, was the mastermind behind the Idol shows and managed the winners of all those shows' early careers and managed the Spice Girls, S Club 7, and a bunch of other big British groups. Lawrence and Clarkson rewrote some of the song, including retitling it Miss Independent, which was suggested by Kelly Clarkson's A&R manager, Keith Naftali. In a section I've titled, Here's What Happens When Women Don't Get to Control Their Own Careers, there are several accounts of how it went from being a Christina Aguilera song to a Kelly Clarkson song. Clive Davis said in his autobiography, The Soundtrack of My Life, that Rhett Lawrence took the track after Aguilera never finished it and shared it with Kelly Clarkson. Both Aguilera was unaware, both Clarkson and Aguilera were unaware the track was being shared. Um, and Clarkson just didn't know that it was a Christina Aguilera song. And they were afraid of telling her because they thought like she would say no to it. And Clive Davis also said that Christina Aguilera was, quote, distinctly miffed about that happening without her knowledge and only got over it once 
The song and Beautiful were nominated for Best P- Female Pop Vocal Performance, and Beautiful ended up winning the Grammy. Hmm. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Kelly Clarkson said on Watch What Happens Live, because that's where everything happens. That's where news actually happens. That's where news happens. I don't want to hear any like Jack Tapper, this, Rachel Maddow, that. No, Andy Cohen, my friend. Andy Cohen is our generation's David Frost. He is we've there said with it before and hitting interviews. Continue to say it until he is duly recognized as such. She said on Watch What Happens Live that she was purposely kept in the dark about being it being a Christina Aguilera track, so she hmm. wouldn't turn it down. And she felt like an idiot because she claimed that she and Rhett Lawrence wrote the song. And later found out in her own album's liner notes, like reading the fucking booklet in her CD, that Christina Aguilera had also written it. And it turns out Christina was not actually mad about what happened. And on TRL, she said that of all people to record it, she was happy it went to someone like Kelly Clarkson, who is a very good vocalist. And Kelly Clarkson has said it's one of the few songs in the album where she got to show off that she could one, write and sing something that wasn't like an American Idol style power Mm -hmm. ballad. But Miss Independent peaked at number nine on the Billboard Hot 100 and number one on the Pop Songs chart. And internationally, the song attained top 10 positions in Australia, Canada, the Netherlands, and United Kingdom. And that is all I have on Miss Independent. That's really interesting, that song bouncing around. That happens so often, but to be purposely kept in the dark really sucks. So so true. Okay, well, I'm going to really swing back all the way around to rap again. Now that we've we've we went from like uh, like new metal rock to female pop star to now the Holiday Inn with Chingy Snoop Dogg and Luda Chris Bridges Chris yes released in August of two thousand and three by Capitol Records and Ludacris's Disturbing the Peace record label it is the second single off of Chingy's debut album Jackpot. Produced by the Right There collaborators, the the track stars, the song was positively received by critics who praised everyone's performances. In 2020, Entertainment Weekly wrote of that legacy of the song is that it increased the quote-unquote coolness factor of the actual holiday in, because I I also have to note that holiday is spelled sort of like bay, (laughs) H-O-L-I-D-A-E, and obviously holiday in is the traditional way that we know how to spell holiday. Anyway, the hotel chain Holiday Inn, based in Atlanta, um, and owned by Intercon- Intercontinental Hotels Group, which also was boycotted by uh, workers in Oakland a couple of years ago. They they boost the coolness factor by releasing this song. And it's just funny that all of those rappers, well, with the exception of Snoop Dogg, are from Atlanta. The single debuted at number 73 on the Hot 100 uh, and the last week of September. And by October, it had entered the top 40. In November, Chingy was added to a tour with a bunch of Atlanta-based rappers like Luda, Little John and the East Side Boys, Ying Yang Twins, and Maya. See, I guess she did jump on one of those tours. The tour included a, num- included a number of stops along the way, and they were all arranged by local radio stations. So wouldn't you know it that the tour ultimately helped the song reach... Uh, 
across the top 10 and number nine on the Billboard Hot 100. And it stayed there across a bunch of charts for 21 weeks, not just the Hot 100. They had their music video directed by Jeremy Rawl, and the video takes you through a high-end hotel called the Jackpot Inn, and every room has a special feature. And you're sort of like, it's as if you're riding like the elevator, like a glass elevator through all of these rooms in addition to all of the performance pieces. So one room has like a pillow fight. Another room is like a smoking room. Another room is like where hot girls go work out. It also featured a Brady Bunch parody segment and a T-shirt that parodied the logo of Holiday Inn and also Home Depot, but it read as the Ho Depot. The video was nominated, <laughs> of course, for a 2004 MTV Music Video Award for Best Hip Hop Video, but lost to Outkast's Hey Ya, which, you know, a lot of things lost out to Outkast's Hey Ya yeah. that year. <laughs> And that is everything for Holiday Inn. I mean, it's just, it is just such a catchy song. And in re-listening to it, I was reminded of how everywhere it was, but also how much I love this song and how I thought it was such a huge feat that I memorized all the words. <laughs> there were, I mean, the the hold that Chingy had on our culture for some time. I know. Well, he, he paved the way for Soldier Boy and Donk because I frequently forget that Chingy did not sing Donk and that that's <laughs> Soldier Boy. Yeah, there is one point where we'll have to talk about Soldier Boy on this podcast and the hold he had on I our I welcome culture. the day. Me too. Uh, to go into a different genre here, I'm going to talk about The Darkness's I Believe in a Thing Called Love, uh, which is the third single from The Darkness's debut album, Permission to Land. Given the rock music landscape at the time, this was not expected to be a hit song. The Darkness was originally called Empire and was started by brothers Justin and Dan Hawkins, and they started out as more of a prog rock group, but eventually changed their name and became well known for their onstage performances with the great costumes, theatrics, very much a nod to like 70s, 80s arena and glam rock. Um, obviously, their biggest inspirations were, you know, Queen comes up quite a bit. Unfortunately, that didn't translate to getting a record deal and labels weren't clamoring to sign them because they didn't think the look would sell and sometimes even thought that the darkness was kind of a joke novelty act. They didn't realize that this was really just, you know, their thing and like that they really enjoyed having costumes and theatrics. So eventually the darkness signed to Atlantic Records and began to record. And when writing this song and going through like writing sessions for the album, Dan Hawkins recalls someone saying, Something along the lines of, why don't we write the stupidest song ever? <laughs> and they had been trying to write something, but weren't having any luck and went, were about to go off to the pub. And suddenly Justin Hawkins played this random riff and the group really, really liked it. And he started singing random lyrics about driving and being behind the steering wheel because he was thinking of a car his dad had restored that had an overdrive button. And Dan Hawkins contributed pre-chorus lyrics, and both the Hawkins brothers have said that the song came together pretty quickly and wrote itself. And Justin Hawkins also said, quote, I had this thing in my head that if we had songs with the word love in the title, we'd be successful. There were a lot of bands that were trying to not write about love, and they were trying to, or they were writing about love, but without saying the word, like they were too cool to say it. I thought, fuck that. Think about some of the greatest songs of all time. They have love in the title. It's there for a reason. Because it's something that we can all feel and understand what it means. To feel embarrassed by it is an immature, a bit immature, really. So when the label heard it, they thought that it was a hit. And it went into all of the darkness's set lists and eventually was released September 22nd, 2003. The song went on to become a massive hit, peaking number two in the UK. Missing number one because of the Black Eyed Peas, Where Is the Love? Wow. How ironic. 
But Permission to Land, The Darkness' debut album, peaked at number one and sold over 2 million copies globally. The Darkness have continued to have success despite breaking up briefly in 2000, well, not briefly, but for a few years in 2006 due to Justin Hawkins going to rehab. They reunited in 2011, and the lineup has stayed the same apart from the drummer, who is now Rufus Tiger Taylor, the son of Queen's Roger Taylor, ironically the band that is one of the Darkness's biggest inspirations. And as for that song being kind of the best song that they're known for, they're definitely not one-hit wonders in the UK, but I would say in the US and a lot of places elsewhere they are. Uh, Justin Hawkins is very grateful. Even if they have to play the song everywhere and people sing it back to him on the streets all the time, he says, quote, it's still the first name on the team sheet when it comes to writing a set, and it's a joyous moment in the set that's never going to be beaten. That song gave me a lot and provided us with a lot of opportunities, and it's the reason why I still work. A hit like that can go a long way to maintain a career. Just having that song means there's always going to be a glimmer of hope for us. And that's what I have on I Believe in a Thing Called Love. And for whatever it's worth, I saw them that year that they blew up, and they were great live, even yeah, though he's playing a lot of the set in a onesie and I thought that was a choice even then it's just yes that's definitely I think still a choice in his uh outfits <laughs> okay another tonal shift <laughs> another huge vibe shift I'm going into my love is like well by Maya this is the lead single off of Maya's third album mood ring and it came out in June of 2003 for this song, Maya re-teamed with her pal, Missy Elliott, after the global success of Lady Marmalade to record this song. But before she released it, Maya took a whole year to decide whether or not to even record it because of the lyrical content. The song was written by Missy, along with the brothers Charles and Kenneth Biriol. Lyrically, it's a mid-tempo bop about self-love, but turns out... She had nothing to be worried about because the song was met with very positive reviews, applauding Maya for her newfound sexual freedom. She spoke to Billboard at the time and she explained, quote, back then I wasn't so confident in saying my ass is like, whoa, I was coming out of doing a program with these young girls that talked about self-esteem and body image. I realized that I really couldn't worry about what people think of me at this point in my life now where I can say my ass is like, whoa, I wasn't even considering the song to be on the album at the time, but I later fought for it to be the single. It would go on to be a top 20 hit in the Billboard Hot 100 for the week of September of 2003, peaking and spending four consecutive weeks at number 13. It performed similarly on the Hot R&B Hip Hop chart, where it peaked at number 17. It would then go on to spend a total of 19 consecutive weeks on the chart, becoming Maya's sixth non-consecutive top 40 solo hit, which is something because she was most known for all of her collaborations at this point. The song's music video was featured on MTV's Making the Video, and it was filmed and directed by Paul Hunter. Paul Hunter has an insane, insane list of credits to his name. Just a really quick sample. I'm just going to scroll. Okay. In the year of 1998, he did Janet Jackson's I Get Lonely, Buster Rhymes' Turn It Up, Usher's My Way, Missy Elliott's Hit Him in the He, Marilyn Manson's Dope Show, and also Manson's I Don't Like Drugs with the Drugs Like Me, Everclear's Father of Mine, Tribe Called Quest, Find a Way, Holes oh Mouth, Lenny Kravitz, Fly Away, uh, Warren G, I Want It All. He's done a shitload of Keith Sweat music videos. This man is, I mean, like, it goes on. I just had to pick yes. one avenue, but I was just, like, scrolling and scrolling. So I was like, I think I know this guy. Or, like, I recognize the name, but I had to, like, put some names there. Anyway, he'd also previously worked on Lady Marmalade with Maya. 
Hunter mm. envisioned this whole thing as like a one woman show. And although this was not initially Maya's vision for the or her idea for the music video, she agreed to it. And she later came up with the idea that she would have all of these like frequent costume changes. And also, and she also came up with the idea that she would like smoke a cigar and then would display her tap dancing skills during the breakdown in, of the song, which is not in like the radio edit, but is in the music video edit. And the dance sequence was choreographed by Travis Payne, and the video was released later on May 29, 2003. It later got her two nominations at the 2003 MTV Music Awards, one for Best Dance Video and Best Choreography. And Travis Payne actually got a nom- got a nomination by the American Choreographer Awards for Outstanding Achievement in a Music Video. So it really is. She's really was doing the, the girls. She was really doing something that the girls were not doing at the time. The costume changes, the difference, the like styles of dance that she does. And she does it all by herself. No backup dancers. Not, there's not another soul in this music video. It's great. It's really impressive to watch. It's like it's like a resume. Like you should just I don't know why we talked about how we didn't understand how she didn't become like a bigger star other than there was a lot of competition at the time. Yeah. And she always was best known for like all of these high end, high profile collaborations. But, you know, Maya was that girl and she still is. She had a lot of she she could do so much more than a lot of other artists at the time because she was a dancer. Like and I'm glad that around that time she was in Chicago, like the movie version of Chicago and the Cell Block Tango. And she's she's been in a few movies here and there. But like, yeah, Maya's due for like more of a comeback for sure. Um, my next song is going to be White Stripes, Seven Nation Army. And we've definitely talked about the White Stripes on this podcast before, but I had to bring this song up because it's amazing how it's become a folk song. That's a part of sports chants around the world. I just heard it the other night, watching the Heat beat the Celtics. Yeah, it was wild. I had no idea. I mean, I did have an idea because I watched part of like the soccer doc where they talked about how they didn't know where the song came from. I'm like, that's crazy to me. It is. um, And I have a really beautiful quote from Jack White about that. Um, Before we go into how it's found its way into the subconsciousness of the world, let's talk about how the song came to be. So in January of 2002, White Stripes were doing a soundtrack in Melbourne, Australia, and Jack White just stumbled into this riff and thought there was something there. He titled the song Seven Nation Army, which was how he pronounced Salvation Army as a kid. But it was only meant to be a placeholder. Eventually, it turned into a song about what he and Meg White were going through in their rise to fame and the rumors they were dealing with. As they were recording what would be their album, Elephant, the label didn't really respond to the song. And that's probably because it doesn't follow a traditional verse-chorus format. It doesn't have a chorus. It really like just uses the guitar riff as his chorus for all intents and purposes. Uh, White continued to be a champion for the song and insisted it should be the album's lead single despite the label's wishes. And it was released February 17th, 2003 and went on to chart at number one on the alternative chart, win a Grammy for best rock song and the kaleidoscope like music video directed by Alex and Martin won for best editing in a video at the 2003 MTV Video Music Awards. Even more impressive is how this song became an anthem cry for sporting events all over the world. The first recorded usage of the guitar rift as a a sports chant was at the UEFA Champions League football match in Italy in October of 2003, during which fans of Belgium's Club Brugge KV began singing the riff in a game against Italy's AC Milan. Club Brugge won the game and the song subsequently became the team's unofficial sports anthem. 
After AS Roma won against Club Bruges in Belgium in 2006, the fans from that team chanted the rift after hearing it and learning it from the Bruges fans, and it made its way up in Italy all the way to the national football team. And fans chanted the rift at games leading up to the 2006 FIFA World Cup. And Seven Nation Army became known as the Po-Po-Po-Po-Po song among Italians and subsequently became the team's unofficial theme with people chanting it in the streets after Italy won the 2006 FIFA World Cup final. Love that for the White Stripes, but I'd like to take a moment and express that I support Zinedine Zidane's headbutt during that game. The Italians said some racist shit, and he put them in their place. Hashtag Allez les Bleus. I just had to get a little soccer chant in there. Thank you. For the both of us. For the both of us. In regards to it becoming a sports anthem, Jack White has been incredibly supportive, saying on an episode of Conan O'Brien that, quote, nothing is more beautiful in music than when people embrace a melody and allow it to enter the pantheon of folk music. It's not mine anymore. It becomes folk music when things like that happen. It becomes something that the more people don't know where it comes from, the happier I am. And it's been played at each UEFA European football championship since 2008 and was played at the prior Uh, prior to the start of each game during the 2018 FIFA World Cup. And it is fascinating. Like even The Ringer, I believe, had an article that was published a few months ago about like when, how does a song become like a sports anthem? And why haven't there been any really since Seven Nation Army that have kind of entered our cultural, whatever you want to call it. Uh, But like, this is really interesting because when you do think of like those songs that are constantly played in arenas, Uh, fields, wherever you may be around the world, this is probably the most recent one to have kind of entered that uh, cultural stratosphere. Yeah. I mean, the only one I can think of before White Stripes is Queen. Yeah. (laughs) So it really, I guess one comes around every 30-ish years. Yeah. Well, here's a song that's definitely at no risk of being any sort of soccer anthem. <laughs> we'll be seeing them in a couple of weeks in a soccer stadium for whatever yes. that's worth. Uh, Feeling This by Blink-182. Feeling This was the first song, is the first song off of Blink-182's self-titled album, and it's also their lead single. The song was released in October of 2003, and it was written by Mark, Tom, and Travis, and was produced and mixed by Jerry Finn. The song originated on the first day of them working on this album. It was the first day of pre-production, and Mark Hoppus had an engineer explain Pro Tools to him, and it was the first time the band would record their music digitally. So he began recording guitar and bass parts and was, like, experimenting with the software. That's when Tom DeLonge and Travis Barker entered, and they began adding tracks to this project. And then this extremely horny song came about, which was perfectly timed for me and my friend's hormones, because it doesn't even try to hide the fact that it's a very sexy, horny song. It's all about lust and passion with a dash of wistfulness and a splash of regret. The lyrics were written by... The lyrics were written with Tom and Mark going into two separate rooms. This is kind of like a, I suppose, infamous story. So if you know, you know. But Mark was writing the choruses and Tom was writing the verses. And the two had not talked to each other beforehand about what they were going to write. So when they came back out, they were both surprised that they had written about sex. And then when they put it together, they had um, they had feeling this. As a longtime Blink fan, I really like how Tom and Mark actually split up the song and then they even like harmonized during some parts. And they said that the song was greatly influenced by Led Zeppelin and the Beach Boys. For Travis, the drum tracks were, quote, super in respect to John Bonham, which I thought was a funny quote. He says more after that, but I'm just going to leave it. 
The music video was shot by David LaChapelle, which when you rewatch it and you go to the you cut to the performance part where they're like essentially in one of those like um, wrestling cages and they have these like giant teddy bears in the background. You're like, oh, yeah, you could ever mistake this for anything other than David LaChapelle it's, it's <laughs> in a dystopian correctional facility slash private high school that's overtaken by horny teens. I love the teens that make out with each other through the plexiglass and the dude mouth oh, yeah. that makes me laugh every single time because that's exactly how being horny feels. This entire music video was shot on one day in September of 2003 in the abandoned Lincoln Heights jail north of downtown LA and only a few days ahead of its premiere. Apparently an early version of the song though was leaked to Madden Elephant NFL 2004 where the song was titled Action but then you know they managed to correct it in time. The song would later peak at number 2 on the Billboard's Modern Rock Tracks chart in 2003 after it jumped from 40 to 13 within a week making it the fourth biggest move in the history of that chart. The song continued to move upwards on the chart over the following weeks eventually achieving the number 2 spot behind Linkin Park's Numb, a song that you already mentioned in November 2003 and it remained there for two more weeks before dropping to number three, after which it continued to drop until it finally exit, it exited charts in February of 2004. But in total, it spent 26 weeks on the chart charts. It also spent eight weeks on that bubbling under 100 singles thing, which is like an extension of the Billboard's Hot 100. And it also did very well in the UK and Australia. And the single was certified gold in 2005. Blink-182 first performed Feeling This alongside a bunch of other songs from that album during the 2003 Reading in Leeds Festival. The band picked Feeling This as their first single because they felt that it was representative of the transition that they had undergone between this album and Take Your Pants Off and Jacket, which, you know, saying that album title out loud, maybe you guys haven't really <laughs> transitioned that much, but, you know. <laughs> I, I I still think that Blink's self-titled album is their best work, and it's my favorite album of theirs. Yeah, see, I love Enema of the State, but I'd have to say their self-title might be my second favorite. Like, I just think it's an interesting shift, and there's, like, such a influence of emo in there, which I always loved. Um, yeah, just a great album. Can't wait to see them. Uh, so excited. So I'm so excited. I'm taking a very... <laughs> weird turn here uh, with what I would say is probably the wild card in my list, despite it being a Christian-esque song. Um, and that's Stacey Rico's There's Gotta Be More to Life. Yeah, I really uh, was like, oh, okay. <laughs> I guess we're doing Dark Horse songs today. This was my one Dark Horse submission. And it's really just because I fucking love this key change. <laughs> oh my uh, God. Of I course. I, but even Bobby Finger has it on his like key change playlist. Like I, you know, it can't be wow. denied. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Christian Christian music or Christian artists were making their way into the mainstream. Wasn't a new thing in the late nineties or two thousands. Like see Amy Grant. But all of a sudden, there were a few artists like Sixpence None the Richer and Switchfoot and Stacey Rico who were way more mainstream and scoring big hits with their more kind of secular-ish songs. Uh, a little bit about Stacey Rico. She was born in Seattle, raised in Denver, grew up singing in church choirs. And at 13, she participated in a talent competition at a Christian music festival. And there was an exec from Forefront Records at the event. And she would go on to sign with them and release her first album, Genuine, in 2000 at the age of 14, which it was at the beginning, I think in one week, it sold 13,000 copies, which was the highest debut sales ever for a Christian female artist. She then opened for Destiny's Child for some of their Survivor World tour dates in 2001, and the album eventually sold 500,000 copies. 
In March of 2003, she released her first mainstream album, Stacey Rico, with Forefront and Virgin Records. And the album, which had a heavy R&B pop feel to it, was co-produced by Dallas Austin, who, along with Babyface, Dark Child, and Dark Child, basically makes up the Mount Rushmore of 90s and early 2000s R&B producers. He was a producer for TLC's four hit albums from the 90s and 2000s, Boys to Men's Coolie High Harmony and Two, Monica's Miss Thing and the Boys Mine albums, and the list could go on. Dallas Austin produced Stuck, which was her first big pop hit, and then Stacey Rico followed that with There's Gotta Be More to Life, which peaked at number 30 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100. The song also peaked at number 5 on the U.S. Billboard Pop Songs and number 31 on the U.S. Billboard Adult Top 40. The music video was directed by Dave Myers, who makes frequent appearances on our podcast because he could basically fill a garage with only Grammys and MTV awards. He directed the music videos for No Doubt's Hey Baby, Pink's Gets This Party Started, Missy Elliott's Work It, Pass That Dutch, and Lose Your Lose Control, Kendrick Lamar's Humble, Katy Perry's Firework, and the list could go on. Stacey Arrigo's self-titled album sold 3.5 million copies globally, but she never really replicated that level of success ever again. Her follow-up, Beautiful Awakening, was postponed in the U.S. and eventually was never really officially released stateside, but was released abroad and is available to stream. Eventually, Virgin Records and Capitol Records merged, and she, like Fifi Dobson and so many other like casualties of record label merging and acquisitions, they terminated her contract. And she's since been featured on a few other artists' albums, rec- uh, including Fantasia Barino and The Fray. She was on. Uh, she performed with Jean Baptiste uh, and the band for um, Late Night with Stephen Colbert. And she's now married with kids and most recently starred in the Savannah Rep Theater's production of the musical Once. And that's all about Stacey Arico. I realize it's a dark horse, but I really enjoy that song. And for for one moment, it did have a hold on our culture. Okay, I'm going to end with an absolute banger. Toxic by Britney Spears, the anthem of all drunk millennial women at Lost Call, as we well know. Amazing, amazing. So as as you were talking about earlier with Kelly Clarkson having, you know, gotten Christina's rejected song, this song was originally written for the Padam queen of the moment, Kylie Minogue, and her album Body Language. But Toxic oh eventually went to its rightful queer icon, Britney Spears, just in time for her fourth studio album, In the Zone. It was released as the second single and written and produced by Bloodshine Ad- and Av- uh, Avent. With an assist in the paint, sorry, it's basketball season, by Kathy Dennis and Henrik Johnback, which incredible names, guys, like Jonathan Lovell here. Like, I can't even believe that these are real people. <laughs> After trying to choose between I Got That Boom Boom and Outrageous to be the second single, Britney Spears did a total left like we have this entire podcast and decided to select Toxic instead. To which I ask, do you think that either of the songs could give us a nude bodysuit covered in crystals? I think not. Sure, on the face of it, Toxic is a dance techno pop song, but really it has elements of South Asian music like she's Bollywood strings. They were sampled from a movie called Tear Me Bish Mine. It's from 1981. All I know is that I got that from a Wikipedia page. You can go ahead and Google that. The lyrics draw an extended metaphor about a lover as a dangerous, addictive drug, as it says very plainly in the song. Toxic shockingly entered the charts at number 53. But it eventually became the week's highest debut when it peaked at number nine. This was her first single to reach the top 10 and became her first single to reach the top 10 since Oops, I Did It Again in 2000, which is criminal. 
Toxic also topped the pop songs and hot dance club song charts, which like no shit. In October of 2004, the song was certified gold. And as of March of 2015, Toxic has sold 2.2 million digital downloads in the U.S. alone. It is her fifth best-selling digital single in the U.S. This song, in addition to being one of her biggest hits, is also what got her a Grammy. It won Best Dance Recording at the 47th Annual Grammy Awards, and the song was also a worldwide success on top of all of that, topping charts in 10 countries, including Australia, Canada, Hungary, Ireland, Norway, and the UK, where it reached the top five in 15 countries. The music video was directed by now-known T-Swift collaborator Joseph Kahn. It features Spears as a secret agent in search of a vial of green liquid. After she steals it, she enters an apartment, poisons her boyfriend. Britney Spears' ex, this is notable because I recently watched this movie, is played by Martin Henderson, who also starred in Joseph Kahn's directorial debut, Torque. (laughs) (laughs) The video also includes interspersed scenes of Spears dancing naked, you know, uh, the illusion, right, with diamonds all over her. But it was deemed too racy after the Super Bowl incident, so it was moved away from, um, you know, like AM rotation of the MTV music videos to late night rotation, which I just thought was laughable. The video was nominated for a 2004 Much Music Video Award in the category of Best International Artist Video, but lost to Beyonce's Crazy in Love. It was also nominated for four VMAs in the categories of Best Female Video, Best Dance Video, Best Pop Video, and Video of the Year, but lost all of them. Uh, Rumors apparently spread at the internet around the internet at this time that it was rigged, which I think that's very funny. Corey Moss of MTV said that Spears remains the Susan Lucci of the VMAs, <laughs> which I thought was really funny. I mean, if Susan Lucci could do like a very seductive dance with a snake. <clears throat> uh, did seductive dance dance with a snake can rock a 60s flight attendant outfit? Like, yes. Can Susan Lucci have multiple bumpets in her hair to pretend like she's dancing on Mars? I don't think so. No way. This song became the opening number for her tour, uh, the Onyx Hotel tour, where she sang atop a bus wearing a black cat suit. When I saw her perform Toxic, it was the slowed down version and it was like a fake rainforest. And she flew from like the top of like a fake tree treehouse across the audience. It was it was stunning. I think all of us gasped. I mean, I know that we'd been drinking, but we were like, she's she's up there. This is like Cirque du Soleil. She has also performed remixes of Toxic at the Circus starring Britney Spears tour, the Femme Fatale tour, and like I had mentioned, the Britney colon piece of me, her Vegas residency. Her impact. Toxic has also been covered by such artists like Mark Ronston, uh, Static Lullaby, Reese Mastin, Ingrid Michaelson in the TV show Glee. It has also been featured in movies like Knocked Up, You Again, Pitch Perfect 3, the TV show Who, <laughs> Doctor Who, and Chuck. <laughs> But since its release, Toxic has become one of Spears' signature songs and is widely cited as the most influential and innovative pop song in history. The song has been included in multiple all-time lists, uh, like Pitchfork, NME, and in 2021, it was ranked among Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs of All Time. In May of 2010, Spears did reveal via Twitter that Toxic is her favorite song in her catalog, and in 2022, in their ranking of every Spears Britney Spears song, Rolling Stone ranked Toxic as number one, which, you know what? They're it's not the wrong. It's the best. It's incredible. It's so How good. How many down creepy versions of Toxic have we heard? I mean, wasn't one so in even? I mean, like, this song's lasting power. Well, the because men are toxic power. no matter what. So it's it's a timeless classic. It is such a good song. I arranged it for a college acapella group, and I performed the solo in it because it was a part of a Britney Spears medley that we did. Uh, thank you very much. <laughs> 
<laughs> and that's my time. Good night. Well, this was a very fun episode. I was glad to go uh, stroll down memory lane, albeit we took a lot of interesting turns and twists. But it's, you know, it's it's not the destination. It's the journey. And boy, what a journey. Look, we got to be us, you know. Yeah. Yeah. We're eclectic. Get over it. I mean, just <laughs> just look at our list. It's called having taste. Okay. <laughs> Taste knows no genre bound. It, it's just, it is what it is. You're either born with it or you're not. And all of the songs that we picked are perfect, just like us. Labels are for clothes. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Um, and on that note, we would like to thank you for not only tuning in for this episode, but continuing to support our wonderful uh, podcast. We are just like so excited to have such wonderful listeners out there. We love all your comments on our Instagram posts. Those of you who've been reaching out to us, telling us about your real life stories and experiences tied to our episodes. This has been a really banner season for us. We've just had amazing guests um, show up and it's been just a really big milestone. And we just appreciate you being along for the ride. Yeah, this was our best season yet, I think. And yeah, I would really like to thank our guests this season. I'd like to thank Stu Krieger for an incredible episode last week. Van from Best Week Ever for a really fun high-profile affairs episode. Uh, Princess for Buy Pumpkin. Like, what a f- great episode. I've had so many Bravo friends reach out and tell me that it was, like, an, an incredible episode of the pod and that she's a great guest and we should have her on again, which I don't disagree don't disagree. Emily from It's Become a Whole Thing was fantastic. That was we just, a great we- time. I hope you guys have all got her journal, uh, Things That I Hate. It, very funny. It's on my Amazon wish list. I can't wait to Same. vent about annoying coworkers in it. Me too. I cannot wait. Um, and I, yeah, just like this has just been a fantastic season. No other notes. Thank well, you again for our, your support. And Emily, thank you for a great season for being oh, a great co-host you know you just you've been the best like we're i'm so fortunate and this has just been a really special season so and thank before you. I love you we for- love you sorry <laughs> didn't, mean to, <laughs> didn't mean to cut you off at the past i just wanted to put out there because i'm also really excited because we did get some really good news yesterday we won we emily some- kim cattrall's coming back to him just like that i know just in we time did it, joe we did it joe call, call joe up and tell him tell him we did it I mean, it's been a week, a banner week for Kim's. Kim Cattrall, Kim Petras is being as featured on the new Paris Hilton's version of Stars Are Blind that's being released this week. Happy Pride. <laughs> Happy Pride. Here's a really gay song. <laughs> I mean, we did it. But, but I mean, I can still hear the, the dump truck full of money beeping into Kim Cattrall's driveway, just dumping loads of cash because, you know, that's what they had to do to get our girl back on our screens they said go get our girl and they went and got a giant dump truck full of money (laughs) and all this is to say is that you know we had a great season this season and we appreciate all of you as much as we also appreciate each other very clearly me and emily and (laughs) we want to let you guys know that we won't be gone for too too long we will be coming back to recap and just like that when it and just like that appears, I believe, is it the 22nd it comes back? It is. It's the 22nd of June. Um, I don't know if yeah. we're going to do week by week recaps because that might, I don't know if there's going to be enough content to like recap it week to week, but we're definitely going to be back in some capacity once and just like that starts back up again. Yeah. Stay tuned for the summertime fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, 
Thanks again for tuning in. As you know, you can find this podcast wherever you choose to listen to podcasts. Um, If you want a little more old millennials in your life, we have a Patreon. And for $4 a month now, yes, $4, you can get one bonus piece of content a month. Uh, This month, we are talking about uh, this new documentary, Queen Maker, which we were so, so on. And we'll, but you want to hear more about it, you should check that out. So if go to patreon.com slash old millennials pod, we're hoping this month to talk about Scandaval. So if you really want to tune in, you should check that out. Uh, again, we are on social media, so you can find us on Instagram and Facebook at the old millennials pod. And yes, individually, if you'd like to find us on Twitter, if it still exists when this airs, I am at Emily A. Beijing. Why? Do you think something's going to happen between now and tomorrow on Twitter? Elon what do you know is, that I don't know? As your pop culture oracle, I know all. <laughs> yeah. So what are you trying to tell me? Should I, Do I even need to bother with this Twitter handle? I mean, just put it out there so it, it's forever memorialized. <laughs> we got 9,000 episodes of me plugging it. But if you want one more, it's at Mark, she wrote, if you're so inclined. Until next time, we say bye-bye. Next season. Next season. Okay, well, (laughs) until next season, we say bye. Bye. Have a great summer. Hags. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.